at Large Group, we've been looking at the series for the past, um, for the past, some, at least this far in the semester. And the series is, Is Christianity Relevant? And what we're looking at is the Christian faith and if and how and why it's relevant to various spheres of our lives. We've looked at dating and relationships, um, school and careers, politics, etc. Um, and tonight, we're going to do that again, and this is actually our second to last one. Next week, Tyler's going to bring us joy and satisfaction, but tonight, we're looking at probably one of the harder things um, to deal with and to reconcile, and that's the idea of pain and suffering, um, and it's something we all face. And so to begin a discussion like this, um, we need to define our terms because that, that word suffering is really broad, and when we talk about it, it's important that we're on the same page as we explore this together. And so... Um, uh, the, 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 the common understanding, as, as I say the word suffering, what probably comes to your mind is this idea of physical pain or emotional pain, um, mental distress or spiritual pain, some kind of angst or frustration or something that brings you harm. And um, that's what we're going to, I mean, that's what we're going to be dealing with. And I want to keep the definition broad. Um, so we're talking about suffering. Fitting into that category can be anything from a failed homework assignment um, or a late homework assignment even to bring your grade down to something as, 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 as difficult to deal with as a death. And so we want to keep this definition broad as we talk about pain and suffering um, because suffering do- doesn't just live in the margin of you know, the extreme, right? We, we all experience throughout almost every day some kind of angst, some kind of suffering. And so um, it's also to... No, it's also important to note that as we're talking about suffering, that is relative because people are different and we experience things in different ways and circumstances affect us differently. And so what's painful for one person might not be for another. That breakup that was hard on you probably wasn't on her, right? And so what we're looking at is, is this idea of pain and suffering. It's, it's relative and we're going to keep it broad. Um, and so we all, we all face varying degrees of suffering throughout our lives as well. So it's relative, it's broad, but there are degrees for each of us too, right? And um, the question is, as regards our series, how do we reconcile this idea of suffering and how do we reconcile the experience of suffering with the Christian worldview? And how is Christianity relevant to that conversation? How do you personally deal with suffering when it arrives? Where is your comfort and hope in the midst of something that's difficult? Um, and so we're all seeking answers to, this, to that question, um, whether we know it or not. Uh, we're all philosophers, we're all, we're all theologians, we're all trying to figure out how to navigate this pain and suffering, both, both rationally, both and emotionally, spiritually, relationally. We're all trying to figure out how to navigate pain and suffering, whether we think about it a lot or not. And um, a lot of worldviews, a lot of religions, a lot of people, um, we're all searching for this. Everybody is. Everyone's looking for answers with this idea and this experience of pain and suffering. Um, Just a couple of examples. Uh, Eastern religions, think Buddhism. The most common thesis among those Eastern religions as to the existence of pain and suffering is, um, I gotta read it because I, I I I don't have it memorized. The most common thesis among them is that suffering exists only insofar as you are ignorant of the spiritual realities that surround you. So it's this idea that becoming aware of your inner self, becoming aware of spirituality and the reality of karma and reincarnation, all that kind of stuff, becoming aware of it is the key to finding peace amidst suffering. 
Um, in other words, get woke. <laughs> That's not hope, though. That's not hope, nor is it comforting. And um, like with what's going, like look at California, Northern California right now with this, this fire that's raging. People are dying, homes are getting lost. You think it's telling someone that's going through that kind of suffering that they deserve it because karma is hope? How is that in any way hope? Only frustration exists there. And moreover, there's no, there's no rationality that that's built on. It's this, it's this vague idea of spirituality. Now, atheism, secular worldviews kind of take the other route, okay? They, it's hyper-rational. Um, and o- o- often, critics of Christianity, particularly of the secular worldviews, like to use the mere existence of suffering as an argument against the existence of God. Um, and it's a hard question to answer. But it's a hard question to answer for every worldview, including theirs. Let me ask you this if you're a secular, if you have a secular worldview, you're an atheist or an agnostic, how can with one breath you claim a moral imperative to do good, a moral imperative to self-sacrifice for the good of the whole, and yet with the same breath claim natural selection and survival of the fittest as the building block of civilization or as, as the building block of the world? It doesn't make sense. An inerrant contradiction. How can you have a problem with pain and suffering when it's just mere, a mere product of natural selection and survival of the fittest? Richard Dawkins gives words to this, actually. Um, he's one of the most well-known, respected atheists, philosophers in probably our lifetime. Um, he says this, nature is not cruel, only piteously indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might neither be good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. That's, that's striking, right? Like that's, that, that's one of the greatest atheist thinkers of our lifetimes, putting words to that idea. Callous indifference is the answer. There's no hope there. Lacking purpose, purpose. there's no comfort, there's no joy in that. And still another, a third way we like to do it, instead of taking a worldview, this is personally the way I have dealt with suffering in my life. And it's just to ignore it. It's to preoccupy ourselves and to self-medicate with other things. It's to distract ourselves from what we're going through. And personally for me, actually out of high school, I had a friend and um, it was a very close friend and she, and she died. And my answer wasn't some rational, hyper-rational, um, to trying to explain it away or some vague spiritual idea of how to find some comfort in it. It was just to ignore it. It was just to chase satisfaction and joy and happiness in anything and everything I could find it in, to just n- kind of numb myself or to escape that experience. And several years and an experience with, with, with real depression, um, later, this creature of suffering still existed and its effects were still in my life. And so kind of what, we've given you, what I've given you here is these, these two different kind of polar ideas of how people deal or how religious people deal with, uh, religious or non-religious rather, deal with pain and suffering. And then probably one of the more common ones, we just ignore it and we self-medicate and we distract ourselves. Um, and so my point in that is that no matter who we are, no matter where you are on campus, no matter what your worldview, no matter what your faith, we have to deal with the idea of pain and suffering. We're all somewhere in there trying to cope, trying to deal with the hard things in life. And um, I said earlier that Christianity is the most relevant to this discussion 
our thesis for this is, is Christianity relevant? I would argue that it is the most relevant to the idea of pain and suffering. Because there is no greater hope and there is no greater peace in suffering than there is in the gospel of Jesus. Christianity in the gospel is the most relevant to how we deal with the hardest parts of our life. So I'm going to open up right now to Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. And this is going to be um, actually 1 through 4. I think 1 through 7 is going to be up there. But we're just going to do, actually no, we'll do all, we'll do through 7. Sorry. Um, so I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray and then we're going to get a little bit into this. Um, so Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as a ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you and I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Uh, let's pray real quick. Father God, I am uh, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the, the truth that you've revealed to us and how Literally every part of our lives are affected in a meaningful and deep way by the truth you've revealed in scripture. And I pray that as we explore this difficult topic, as we um, try to, to reconcile rationally and emotionally and spiritually the harder things we face in life with our faith, that you would, you'd be kind to us as we wrestle with this. And um, that in, 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 this, in this, this room this evening, your gospel would be clear and the name of Jesus would be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we swim through this issue, as we swim through all of these issues, we've kind of had three questions we're looking at. So that first question is, how does the Bible explain and define our suffering? And so the first thing I want to do here is um, I want to look at where suffering comes from. And um, I see in scripture, we talked about this last year a little bit, there are really four different ways the four different places that our suffering comes from, that our pain comes from. And so the first one is we suffer because we live in a fallen world. There's a fallen creation around us. Entropy, disorder to disorder. We are all products of the fall. And throughout this series, we've constantly looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We've looked at the fall and we've looked at pre-fall and how that's affected all these different spheres of our lives. And the reality is, is we suffer because we live in this fallen world. There are hurricanes, there are floods, there are fires in California. These things are in ways unavoidable and they will always exist as we exist on this earth. And so it's a, it's a, it's a type of suffering that we will all face no matter where we are at. The second and third types of suffering are the we suffer at the consequences of our sin and we suffer at the consequences from the sin of others. And so these are two sides of the same coin and I'll use an illustration. How many of you guys have been in a, like a group project this year yet already? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you get in a group project, you have four or five people, and you have that one dude who, like 11.50, 11.47, it's due midnight, he hasn't turned in his crap yet. The worst, right? 
you and the rest of your group suffer because of that guy's laziness or that guy's inability to follow instructions or read right, <laughs> right? You're suffering because of somebody else's uh, sin, right? On the other side of the coin, you're that dude, <laughs> right? And so this idea, we suffer at, because of other people's sin, other people affecting us, or we suffer because we've done something and there's consequences to it, just natural consequences to turning in a, a paper late, right? And so these two, we will also always face. Like we, we're gonna exist in this fallen world and we're always gonna deal with our sin and the sins of others. And the fourth type of suffering is a very different kind of suffering. And this kind of suffering is suffering for the name and the sake of Jesus. And the reason we categorize this differently than, other, than people sinning against us is because the Bible categorizes it differently. So with this kind of suffering, suffering for the name and sake of Jesus, think martyrdom. Think persecution. Um, 11 of the 12 disciples were executed and the 12th who wasn't executed was boiled alive and exiled to an island. Um, and historically, God's used this kind of suffering to advance the gospel through nations. The book of Acts is, is Paul going into a city, getting beaten up, thrown outside the gates and moving to the next city and then over and over again, just persecution. And God's used that. And so this fourth type of suffering we're talking about, we wanna keep separate from the other kinds of suffering. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, so we have these four kinds of suffering, right? And we can categorize our suffering this way. And that's actually helpful for us because it helps us to see um, how and where to respond rightly and faithfully as we walk through these, these things. Um, but as we're, as we're endeavoring to, to look at how the Bible explains our suffering, um, let's look at Isaiah 43, one through two again, okay? Um, Isaiah 43, one through two. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. So the first thing I wanna point out with this text right here is the word when at the beginning of verse two and in the middle of verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fires, you shall not be burned. It's a very different word than if, right? What this is saying, what, what, what God is telling Isaiah and the people of Israel is that they are going to suffer. Like they're gonna hit hard things in life. Like they're gonna be put in, they're gonna be enslaved they're gonna be in exile. They're gonna be oppressed. God is promising that they'll suffer. And this is the same is true for us. We will inevitably suffer. The Bible promises suffering. The, uh, this reality is true for us. This reality was true for them. We will encounter suffering. It is inevitable. You see, we, we exist in between two perfects, okay? We've looked a lot at the beginning of Genesis and Genesis one and two. Perfect existence for Adam and Eve. No sin, no fallen creation, just perfection with God. And then the other end of that perfect, that spectrum is glorification, eternity. And we exist in between there. We exist in that space in between. And in that space, there's sin, there's a broken creation, there's self-interest, there's death, there's disease, there's, there's, there's suffering in between the perfects. See, God never once in scripture promises that by trusting in Jesus, all your problems are gonna go away. That's called, actually called the prosperity gospel and that's no gospel at all. God absolutely, um, sorry, skipped over a, 
paragraph. Um, he never once promises that we are, that all our problems will be taken away. Um, Jesus in the gospel, your faith, they're not magic words. They don't automatically remove the emotional pain, the physical pain, the spiritual and mental, any kind of difficulty that you go through. It doesn't just dissipate as you believe in the gospel, whereas the gospel takes root in your life. Those unpaid bills before you were a Christian, still unpaid. They don't magically get zeroed out. Um, what Christianity isn't is it's not a magic wand to wave over your problems so that they go away. Um, God absolutely has the power and the prerogative to intervene, and he has throughout history, and he does. Some of us have probably experienced some of that. I know I have in certain ways. Like when I, at my conversion experience, there are certain sins I struggled with that for whatever reason I have not struggled with since. But then there are others that still are there and I wrestle with them daily. But the point is, is, that, is that the gospel and, and the Christian faith doesn't just erase your problems. It doesn't just erase what you're going through, the, the, the suffering that you're going through. Um, in fact, as we see in this verse, God promises the opposite. God promises that we will endure pain and suffering and Specifically, that fourth category that we were talking about, suffering for the name and sake of Jesus, you can't do that unless Jesus is your identity. Um, now, perhaps most of you are thinking, like, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of heavy, heavy stuff, right? Like, just throw down suffering. We suffer this way, that way, and the other way. Life sucks, right? And um, you said at the beginning there'd be hope, and we're getting to that hope. And... Um, in order to get to that hope, we have to get to our second question. And our second question here is, how does the gospel renew our idea of pain and suffering? And so let's look at our text one more time. Um, let's look at actually start in two, verse 2 through 4. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. So that phrase, um, I will be with you, is really cool. You think about it, right? You're not alone through suffering. God's with you. God is with you as you walk through that breakup. God is with you as, you as you experience the death of a family member. God will walk with you through it, and it's comforting to have that. But this gets deeper than just this nebulous idea that God is with us. It gets a lot deeper in that. Read verse 3 and 4 again. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I will be with you has much deeper meaning than just that God walks through life with us. This means if the word ransom, the word exchange, the word I give people for you. Who did God give for us? Jesus, right? He, got, he, he, he ransomed Jesus. He gave Jesus in exchange for us. So this idea that God is with us through suffering, the deep meaning to that is Jesus has walked through 
the exact sufferings you have walked through. He walks through it in deeper ways than you'll, you've walked through it. And he has walked through it in deeper ways than you will ever walk through it. Hebrews 5 describes Jesus as being our sympathetic high priest, meaning Jesus experienced suffering and pain and temptation in every way that we will ever experience it. He knows exactly, and he's experienced exactly what you and I have experienced. One of his closest friends betrayed him. He had to watch as his mother endured his execution and torment on a cross. At every turn of his teaching, he was encountered and contradicted by the religious and philosophical thinkers of the day. He, he experienced all these different kinds of suffering, deep and less deep than as we will. And what does that mean for us though? It means that we can face every bit of suffering we encounter with confidence because Jesus did. And do you know what we know because of the fact that Jesus walked through this? We know that he, loves, that he loves us. Why did Jesus endure so much pain? Why did he endure so much suffering? Because he loves us. Why did he die? Why did he come? Why did he set aside his divinity to come and be a man and exist in this fallen body and, and, and try and live life because he loves us? Why did he die in that body? Because he loves us. Why did he rise again? Because he loves us. He did all of that for you. He did all of that for me. He did all of that for the Christian. And we know that despite our circumstances, where we often ask, why God? We know the answer isn't because he doesn't love us. We know he loves us because he experienced it. However we wrestle with our suffering, however we deal with it, we can know and we can rest in the fact that Jesus loves us. There's always peace. There's always peace in knowing that Jesus endured everything that you will ever endure. Um, you guys ever seen the movie Hitch? Yeah? Raise your hand if you've seen Hitch. Do you know how, so it's the, yeah, so much of you've seen it. The dance scene, right? This is home, right? This is home. Doesn't know how to dance, has no idea what he's doing. This is home. As you and I walk through suffering, as you and I walk through pain in life, that's our home. We know Jesus loves us. We can always forever rest in the fact that Jesus loves us. It's not just something that Christians say. We know Jesus loves us because he proved it on the cross. He proved it by setting aside his divinity, taking on humanity. Now, the unasked question that we have all probably had, I know I've had in my life, is why the heck would I want to be a Christian if suffering is promised, right? If there's this extra kind of suffering set aside just for Christians, why would I want to endure that? Why would I want to be a Christian, right? But I would always point back to that home. I would always point back to Jesus loves us. That he endured that suffering so that you might have something beyond this life. So there's a peace and there's a rest in pulling this truth, the truth of Jesus dying for us, living for us, down over all of our life, including our suffering. There's a peace in it. But peace and hope are different words. I said at the beginning, there's peace and there's hope. And so where's the hope? That's peace. That might give me comfort in the, in the moment of suffering, but where's the hope of suffering? I want to turn to Romans 8, 18 through 24. 
And this is what Johnny read for us. I love, this is like one of my favorite sections in the Bible. Uh, Let's read this together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there is always context to everything in life, right? Context just meaning there's more than just the specific circumstance. Context meaning there's more than just this piece of paper here. There's this the stand holding it up. There's the Bible sitting next to it. There's me reading off of it. There's context to everything in life. Nothing exists in a vacuum. And actually, I had to look that up because I knew that if space was a vacuum, I would hear it from Garrett. And so I looked it up. Space is not actually a vacuum. There are actually molecules of glass floating around. And if you get into interstellar space, there's even, so I'm right about this, NASA website, yo. Six atoms per square meter in interstellar space. That's like the closest you'll ever get to a vacuum, right? And so my point is, is that there's no such thing as a vacuum in space or in our lives, okay? And so if you, if you take that idea of space and you zoom out, if it was a perfect vacuum, if you take that idea of space and you zoom out, what begin, begins to come into view are planets and stars and solar systems. And you start to see a bigger picture of what the universe is and And you get the larger, more beautiful picture of what the whole looks like. And so nothing exists in a vacuum and neither does our suffering. See, if we zoom all the way out on our pain, if we take that idea of living between two points, we live in that spectrum, right? We're living between two perfects. If we zoom out on our pain and suffering, what begins to come into view is the border of that perfection what this verse is talking about. This idea of a resurrected body, a new creation, glorification, perfection. We start to see the greater context of our suffering. And so there will come a day for the Christian where we get an eternity. We get that glorification, that resurrected body, a return to the perfection that Adam and Eve existed in a fulfillment of our creative purpose to glorify God, free from the bondage of corruption, as this verse says. You see, the gospel is the greatest hope and the greatest peace because nothing but the gospel can offer the hope that this verse offers. Nothing else offers an eternity of perfection. So look at how Paul actually starts this section that we started with in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That opening there means that the sufferings we experience, the most difficult things we face in life, 
won't even register 500 years from now as we're existing in this eternity. Won't even register. It's not a blip on the radar. It never hit the radar. Your joy is going to increase to such a height that as you look down, all you can see is the glories of Jesus and the glories of the gospel. That suffering, that pain, that relationship, that death, that failed exam, whatever it is, it's like it never existed. It'll be a memory of a memory. But this idea is hard, right? It's hard. And it's not like you can say to your friend, or you can, I, you can sit here and listen to this and be like, that's great. That's, that's a good idea. Man, it's hard for me to reconcile that. Like how, how am I, I can't think of what that's going to be like. So how am I supposed to contextualize that for my suffering, right? It's hard for me to wrap my head around. That story I shared at the beginning, like it's hard for me to imagine a place where that suffering and that pain that I experienced, that their parents experienced, that my family, people close to her experienced, It's hard to imagine a space where that doesn't register. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard for us to imagine that. But look at it like this. Say we are a a little eight-ounce glass of water. This is a silly illustration, so bear with me. We're a little eight-ounce glass of water, okay? And there's this 32-ounce pitcher of water, and we pour into it, and we get eight ounces. And we want to keep we keep pouring that 32 ounces in there. We only have a limited capacity. We only have a limited capacity in our eight ounces to, to hold water. For us, as fallen and finite creatures, we only have a limited capacity to understand what the possibility of eternity will be like. We have a limited capacity to rationalize how in the world my suffering is going to be made made a memory of a memory, we don't, it's hard to rationalize for us. But let me tell you something, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because if you could understand it, if you could comprehend it, it would cease to be infinite. It would cease to be perfect. Because if my fallen, finite mind could understand the perfections of the infinite God, how could that possibly be infinite if I'm finite? So that's a good thing. That's something we can rest in. As we zoom out and look at this context, we can rest in that. We can rest in knowing that despite the fact we can't rationalize it, that is an eternal hope and an eternal promise. And God has forever, throughout scripture and throughout history, delivered on his promises. You see, the gospel renews our ideas of suffering because it alone offers peace, through the sustaining love of Jesus and hope through the infinite glories to come. Um, So we've taken um, this thing, this this creature suffering that we all deal with. We've looked at it biblically, right? We've looked at it culturally too a little bit. And we've looked at it biblically, how the Bible defines it, how the Bible describes it and says where it comes from. And we've looked at the gospel and how it kind of redeems it for us and how we can can look at our, our life, specifically suffering through the gospel, and how we can get to hope and how we can get to peace. But now what, is, what does that mean moving forward? And that leads us into our third question, which is how does the church embody hope and peace through suffering? And so I'm going to start with, this is going to sound a little weird, my, 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 my premise to this point, but I'm going to start with verses then because I'd rather you guys say God's word is, is weird than me. So... Um, Romans 5, 2 through 4, 2 through 5 rather, says this, 
Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now look at Colossians 1. 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Um, final verse, Acts 5, 41. I'm going to turn around and read it because I didn't mark it in here. So, um, Acts 5, 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. So this idea that I want to present to you, this action step that I want to present to you, as weird as it sounds, is to rejoice in your suffering. See, the gospel and the scriptures direct the Christian to rejoice in his sufferings. We looked at three verses. There are dozens more I could have gone to. You see, the biblical mandate to the church, the biblical mandate to the Christian is to rejoice amidst the pain in life. And um, if we're talking about, go back to the four we talked about, the four different kinds of suffering. If we're talking about that fourth one, that makes sense, right? Rejoice in the fact that I get to go, that, 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 these, that the disciples, take the disciples, for example, the 11 that died, they can rejoice in the fact, knowing that their deaths spurred on the gospel to, to be poured out over generations and generations and spread across countries and countries. Their deaths produced that. God used their deaths to produce that. That's something I could rejoice in, right? That's something I could get behind. It's harder to reconcile how and why we should rejoice in the other kinds of suffering, isn't it? Like, why should I be excited? I failed my exam. Doesn't really, doesn't really make sense, right? Let me, but let me say this. As a Christian, you can rejoice. You can find pleasure and you can find purpose in every single kind of suffering you will experience in this life. For maybe that failed exam is a good thing for you because you didn't really have a work ethic in high school and you didn't now, and that teaches you, hey, I gotta actually try, you know? I gotta actually try in college. That's my story. Maybe it teaches you to have a good work ethic. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe that failed exam, you have 10 more failed exams and you fail a couple classes and then you learn. God uses that experience to teach you. And in the moment, it's hard to see why I should rejoice in this. I mean, it's impossible to see why I should rejoice in that, right? But you zoom out and you look. I look back at my life and I see all of the ways that I have struggled, I have failed, I have experienced pain and suffering. And on almost every single one, I can point to something and I can rejoice in something that that suffering produced. And I bet the same is true for you. I bet the same is true. If you took the gospel, if you took that idea of peace in the love of Jesus, hope in the eternity of the gospel, and you laid that out over your life, and you look back at the ways in which life's been hard, I bet you too can point at products of your suffering and rejoice in them. Um, see what I shared earlier about my friend in high school? That event, her death, that actually catalyzed my conversion. God used that to save me. You see, he opened my eyes to the reality of the brokenness of this world, of sin, of death. 
I was, I was existing nominally, didn't have a care in the world, didn't give a, a, a bleep about Christianity or religion or faith. And this event, this suffering, the lasted years, God used it to catalyze my conversion. And while I'm still, I'm still affected by that event, I can point to something. I can point to my conversion and say, God used that for my good. Look at Romans 8, 28, a verse most of us probably know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. God used something for good in my life that only in them, I could, I could see it as nothing but pain and he used it for good. And like I said, if you examine your life, if you pull the gospel down over your experiences with pain and suffering, perhaps you too can see the ways in which God's used it to refine you, the ways God's used it to bring about sanctification, the ways God's used it to bring about your conversion. But the, the, the big idea here is that in those moments, it's nearly impossible to see it unless we zoom out and look at the larger context of which the greatest context is our eternal context. And so um, we can rejoice in all of the different kinds of suffering we face, not because of the suffering itself, but because of what that suffering may have produced. Um, Romans 5.35, uh, sorry, Romans 5.3 through 5 says this, and we read it earlier. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Um, all of that being said about looking at our lives, about zooming out, about laying the love of Christ over it and his experience with suffering, that's all important for us to do on a personal level. But what's most important is for us to do it collectively. The question was, how does the church embody the idea of hope and joy and pain and suffering? You see, what you deal with on your own, you were never intended to deal with on your own. God gave us the church. You remember when we did relationships and marriage? How God, in, in Genesis 2, before the fall of humanity, designed marriage to mirror Jesus and the church? You see, we are part of that church, every single one of us as Christians. We were never intended to walk alone. We were never intended to deal with things alone. We were never intended to think or wrestle with our suffering alone. You see, we use the word discipleship around GCF a lot. And what that word just means is it's helping each other follow Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. And part of helping each other follow Jesus is through our sufferings together. We need each other in the same way that your suffering doesn't exist in a vacuum, you don't exist in a vacuum either. In fact, you exist on a secular campus where, where the campus ministries at the school are tiny. There are less Christians on this campus than most campuses, I would imagine. You actually exist in a place where it's harder to deal with your pain, where it's harder to deal with the difficulties in your life. You need the church, you need other Christians, you need your peers all the more. See, we need each other. We need, we need shoulders to cry on. We need to go to funerals together. We need to help each other study for those exams. We need to assist and help 
disciple each other. But um, let me say this, if, if all of that, that helping, the practical ways we help each other, if that's not happening, or if that's happening and what's being given away isn't the gospel, that's not sustainable. That's not ultimately helpful because the gospel is the only thing that, only thing that's going to help that stretches into eternity. You can help someone now, but what about their eternity? If you're going to, if you're going to help your peers, if you're going to disciple your peers and what you're giving away isn't the gospel, you're not helping them at all. That's why we laid out the idea of Jesus suffering. That's why we laid out the idea of eternity and hope through the gospel because those are the things that are sustainable as we wrestle with our pain and as we wrestle with our suffering. You see, there's no real hope. There's no real peace in suffering outside of the gospel. You see, the atheist's hope, it engages the mind and neglects the soul. The opposite is true for the Buddhist. And the apathetic man neglects both and tries to drown and preoccupy himself with other experiences. You see, we're all trying to answer this question and trying to deal with the crap that hits us in life. As a Christian, the gospel is the most relevant to the idea of pain and suffering because you have the guarantee of Jesus' love. You have the, an eternal hope not worth comparing to the sufferings of this world. It is a hope and it is a love that sustains your soul and it is a hope and it is a love that sustains the church. So is Christianity relevant to the idea of suffering? It is the most relevant. Amidst suffering, there is no greater hope. Amidst suffering, there is no greater peace than in the gospel of Jesus. So let's pray. Father God, um, we are, um, I'd just like to say again, we're grateful. We're just grateful for your word. We're grateful for truth. We're grateful that, that in every way we've ever suffered, in every way we ever will suffer, that Jesus experienced it, and he didn't experience it, um, or experienced it for us. He experienced it for our joy. He experienced it for our salvation, Father. I pray that we would keep our eyes set on eternity, that we would keep the, the greatest context of our lives in view as we attempt to wrestle with and as we attempt to navigate the hard things in life. And Father, I pray that, that as GCF and as, as, as members of churches and as students on campus, that we could see the need for each other in this and that we could see the need for help and for helping. So Father, we love you. Um, we hand our suffering over to you, and we pray that we, would, um, that we would rest in the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.